0: Namo tassa, pakawato, arahato, samma, sambutasa. Namo tassa, pakawato, arahato, samma, samputasa. Namo tassa, pakawato, arahato, samma, samputasa. Uttang, dammang, sankang, namasami. Let's just start with the questions here. Uh, this one first. Practicing loving kindness needs to practice to each person in order or not, i.e. respectful person first, or it can be anyone first, even start with yourself. So that question probably comes from the classical Visuddhi Magga way of describing metta bhavana, where you have uh, a loving person, uh, someone you respect, a neutral person, or somewhere in yourself, a neutral person, an enemy. That's one of the classical ways you find, so the list is like that. Another classical way you find is through Um, An expansion to infinity, so you begin with yourself, and then the people around you, and then a larger group, and a larger group, and you use imagination to uh, spread metta to the whole universe, and then you do lists. You can do all men, all women, all, uh, all humans, all insects, all devas, all ghosts. So there's various patterns you find uh, in the literature. Um, personally, personally, I, I think for me, um, my interest is more not so much the object the objects that are being projected onto or used for the development but it's the very feeling in the heart which is interesting for me because I sense that once I know what that feels like and once it's abiding as openness and metta then I can just abide there all the time uh, and it doesn't really involve any particular person and then when it closes through fear or aversion or whatever reason then that contraction becomes an indication something's something is going on I need to pay attention to right so my sense of it is just to to get that at least this is how I use it so I just share that with you just get that open and rolling and and understood as a as a skillful place of abiding um, and then if you want you can expand that and play around with it but it's that that openness, which I I find most helpful and most useful, uh, so that if I'm if I'm talking with a person from here, there's an intelligence here that is different than here, and it is intelligent, isn't it? It's very interesting. Where when I am receptive to human interaction from this place, there's. There's an intelligence functioning there. Not that this the head thing doesn't work, but there's a kind of intuitive um, interchange in presence with a person which I find very very helpful and interesting and and I would say wise, yeah, I would say it's it's wise Um, So in terms of you know None of these techniques are rigid. Now, metta bhavana is not praying. And you know, this is where people get mixed up. They think, I am sending metta to the monks at tisarana. May they be well and happy. That's, that's more Christianity, actually. <laughs> we pray for that, and we do that. We do that, but that's, it's about the mind. It's about cultivating the mind, right? And we use other beings and so on, but the idea of, you know, I'm sending you metta. Sure, we play around with that, but that's not its function in Buddhism. It's about cultivating the mind. How it works on that level of transmission of energy, I have no idea. Some people say it works, some people doesn't, but I reckon if I just take care of this this bit, right? And then I think good thoughts about people. Somehow it'll work. So people ask us, you know, someone is having an operation, can you spread metta? Well, I do that, I do that. But you won't really find that in the texts. You won't find, I don't think you'll find the Buddha before a meal spreading metta. You know, you find it more that it's actually a development of consciousness, wholesome consciousness that we're involved in. Not that I'm dismissing prayer, but it's not really prayer, it's developing the mind, developing the heart. Um, so the, the, the most, I think one of the more humorous incidents I had in, you know, this is in Auckland in New Zealand, I have a very good friend there, she's quite elderly now. And she's got a big family. And uh, she's a very loving woman and I asked her, so how, how, how's the metta going? She said, it's exhausting. I said, why? I got so many people to cover. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, Benita, it's not. Uh, so she, she and also she wanted to give equal value to each person. You know, so like Rohan and Shanti, I mean, they had to get you know equal like five minutes or something. No. And and so her idea was like, you know, okay you get five minutes, you get five minutes. So she never finished the family in an hour meditation. (laughs) But that's not what it's about, you know. It's just about the, the wholesome, well at least this is what I think. The wholesomeness of consciousness, abiding in wholesomeness and then living our lives from that wholesomeness, right? And So whatever way you can access that, it's good. And then if that f- sense of wholesomeness can be a, a place of abiding that informs you about unwholesomeness as unwholesomeness arises, uh, friction or, or fear or whatever it is. And then you process these, like to process kile. we use the word kile and defilements. You can process them through the body, can't you? Now, I teach that a lot, don't I? You know, so, so I feel uh, annoyed at someone for some reason. Uh, I can think, you know, about annoyance, but I can say, well, this feeling in the heart is not connection; it's alienation, it's separation. It's and if I ta- and if I if I don't notice it, it's a strong sense of me and them, right? So I noticed that and I thought, no, no, well, what, what does it really feel like? And then I go to that and it, it melts and that separation and alienation of me and them falls away. Uh, at least that's how I use it. So m- m- my recommendation is just kind of, you know, when, I, when I first started to try to develop the heart, this was way, way back when I was a young monk, it was dead here. It was quite dead. It was too active up here. So I started by putting Tiger Bomb here. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's warm. <laughs> you gotta try something, right? <laughs> but in, in in these techniques, it's like, what what are we what are we aiming for? And it's it's that sense of connection. So some people like I remember one retreat teaching this, and some person. Couldn't get into it. I said, "Well, try gratitude." And as soon as she brought that word up, gratitude. Oh yeah, yeah, that's easy for me. Mm-hmm. So these are all—it's all the same heart, isn't it? So you access it through different language or different techniques. Once you access it, then um, then you know it. Just you know what that's about. But just in—in in, just if I may reiterate my suggestion in the mornings when you wake up, see if you can go to that and see what's going on there. I find that very interesting. Very interesting. I don't understand it intellectually, but something's going on there <laughs> of value. And uh, so my sense is that when we wake up, deep, there's something very profound about deep sleep. Very profound. And then when we come out of that, the and I, I talked about this earlier, and again, I'm not so clear, but it is intuitively where I go. Um, We come out of deep sleep and all of a sudden the thoughts begin to percolate, The sense of self begins to get born into consciousness, and um, so I'm suggesting that rather than allowing that to kind of come into consciousness, what if we went back more to the whatever deep sleep is about? What if we went the other way, but not fall asleep? That's the, I'm kind of involved in that experiment now. I've been doing that for about two or three years. Um, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's just something about deep sleep and the waking up to consciousness. And at the very least, you realize that if you're not aware uh, of your mental processes when you wake up, then what happens is just you know, whatever happened when you woke up, that's what's going to happen when you, when, when you went to sleep. That's an interesting one to see, isn't it? You know, you're worried about the dog's health or whatever. When you went to sleep, you're going to be worried about the dog's health when you wake up. It doesn't stop. And, and so when you awaken in the morning, if you, if you notice the pattern of mind, you got a good chance not to get reborn into that, in that, in that way, in that psychological way. And, and you, can, you can like go to the heart and put the thinking down. So then you enter into the world from, not from the habit of self, but from the wisdom of the heart, to the wisdom of presence. So, so how do you do that? Well, you make the intention um, to, to you make the intention before you go to sleep to say, well, as soon as, as, soon as consciousness, or, or I know what's going on, I'll go to the heart, or I'll go to thought. What's going on? And then you're aware of it, and then you have a choice. Also, when we wake up, quite often, you know, we're, 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 we're quite scattered. Like You know, you're buttoning your shirt up, and you're, you're brushing your teeth. And, you know, you're doing all kinds of things. One thing at a time, composed and collected. You'll get it done, don't worry. And, and that helps, because that sets the tone for the day. Uh, and, and the next moment, and the next moment. All right. How can we live in tune with tanha? I would say so. You know, we use tanha and chanda in the Pali, right? So chanda is the uh, uh, is the idea of aspiration towards goodness, and that's considered skillful in 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 the differentiation of language. Tanha is is considered to be uh, invested with the ego and and avija, so it's considered to be unskillful. In English, we don't have that differentiation, we just tend to use the word desire. And then people get confused. Well, I'm, you know, I, I desire to get enlightened, is that bad? So it gets confusing. Nepali's easier that way. So chanda is the, the desire for wholesomeness and for goodness and for order and, and uh, uh, for freedom from suffering and uh, Not wanting to be a bad person, wanting to be a good person. These are very, very wholesome things. Tanha is always uh, the engagement with wanting and and self. And and it's a wanting that is, um, it doesn't understand the way things are. So when Tanha and Chanda get confused, you have something like um, a person getting angry a lot. Wanting to be free of the anger, that's chanda. And then hating themselves, I shouldn't be angry, I shouldn't be angry, that's tanha. So you get the mixture of, of, of tanha and chanda. So what you want to do then, is try to get out of the story, as I've been saying, and get to the, just the, the flow of consciousness. So there's this experience of anger now, And I've already set my mind, I want to be free from anger. And I look at that and say, well, what does anger feel like? That's not Tanha. And then I see what the attachment to anger is, how that works, how not to attach it, how the language of attachment works, where it feels in the body, and so on and so forth. So it becomes an investigation of the problem. And then as I understand the problem, why it keeps perpetuating itself, there's wisdom. And then the chanda is is served by wisdom rather than ignorance, so that's why the four noble truths are very very good. Uh, so how can you be in tune with tanha? Well, part of part of uh, nature's tanha is biological, right? So we we're hungry uh, for a reason. Uh, we we move out of discomfort for a reason. We put on a when it's minus 30 degrees in Ottawa, <laughs> we put a coat on because <laughs> it's cold. So, so, so that, there's the biological uh, part of, of wanting, which is, we couldn't exist without it. But then the biological wanting can get uh, uh, out of line, say, let's say someone who just eats too much. You know, they get, they just eat a lot, and I mean, that's not biological, that's psychological, right? And so someone is depressed, and the way they deal with the depression, they binge on food. Not uncommon these days, unfortunately. So that's not, that's not biological. Uh, Or let's say like sexual desire. We, as monks, we live celibate. Now... Uh, if you don't understand celibacy then you could certainly repress sexual desire and and get very confused. But what we need to learn to do is to be aware of a biological desire but not engage with it and you can do that. You can can be aware of sexual desire and be very very patient with it and and watch it um, move through consciousness. And that's a difficult thing to do for um, probably young men more than older men. But Lumpa Cha had a tremendously powerful lust to uh, comma. If, if you've read his biography, very powerful. So now he, it seems like he, you know, we're going against biological Tana. We're not going against it. That would be repression. But also we're not pursuing it because it's not really necessary for living this life. It's necessary for procreation. So we have to learn how to uh, abide with unfulfilled desire. And and that particular desire is, is, is very, very strong for nature's reasons. But if we can learn to do that, to abide with unfulfilled desire, there's a lot of strength and awareness then. And a lot of the normal kind of... You know, observation of tanha is is bearing with unfulfilled desire, yeah. uh, and and that leads to a lot of peace if it's done with wisdom. Now, these things can all be done with repression. You can repress them. So, certainly, I think the the Catholic Church has a lot of problem with that because the language of the Catholic Church is quite often that uh, that even thoughts of sexual desire are evil. For us, no. Thoughts of sexual desire just thoughts of sexual desire. Don't go there. They're not good nor bad. They're just natural, right? And that's the beauty of Buddhism. It doesn't make these things evil or wrong. They're just, they're just saying, well, if you go that path, that's the path of sensuality. That's not the path of enlightenment. Do this other path, that's the path of enlightenment. So in, in lay life, say, sexual desire is, is allowed, but in a, in a relationship of fidelity. Sexual promiscuity, you say, watching porn and all that kind of stuff—that's that's aberrant. That's not appropriate. It's not right. So, the Buddha was trying to kind of, you know, and we're all trying to get desire, kind of in 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 its right perspective. What is it used for, and what is it skillful for? Um, so, to say that I shouldn't have desire of any kind of desire is not wisdom. Right? Wisdom is desire feels this way, right? And now what should I do with that? How should I act or how should I not act? So I'm, I'm sitting and, and, my ma, and my knee is really in pain and pain and pain and pain and I, and I sit through it, bravo, and I'm crippled. <laughs> that's dumb, right? That's stupid. And that's called stupid, stupid energy, right? Uh, uh, I feel a bit restless, you know, and it's five minutes and I leave the sitting because there 's too much pain. Uh, that 's stupid too. <laughs> that's no, there's no, no virya. there 's no aditana, there's no endurance. so what 's the balance? Well, each of us has to figure out our own balance um, so some some witnessing of desire, unfulfilled desire is tremendously um, self empowering you know when you when you when you bear witness to something you've had difficulty looking at and you bear witness to it and you, and you, and you, and you stay with, it and you say, wow, I can do that. That's a good thing, it, it, it builds a kind of confidence. But I know my early years of monasticism, a lot of my witnessing of desire was just through willful effort, like willful effort not to move and willful effort to do eight hours of practice, but it wasn't with wisdom. It was, there was enough wisdom that I learned not to do that, right? I guess that's how we all learn. But it was, it was driven by the desire to become, you know, and, and competition with other monks and all these things, right? Um, you know, I, let's see, let's see. Is there any, okay, and oh, he's nodding, oh, okay. And I'm better, you know, all kinds of silly stuff going on. And then, you see, or, or that I, I, I do all night sittings, right, and feel very, very proud. And I'd be able to sit all night from pride for maybe half a year. And after about a half a year, I realized no one really cared. And then I collapsed. Because the energy was from ego, from pride, and, and all the rest of it. So you learn. You learn that way. So then you see, how can I, how can I fulfill this desire for enlightenment but not take it from ego. Not fake it from, I am someone who's becoming enlightened because that does not work. And then you see it's the very sense of I which I need to investigate. The very sense of ego and self-identity and Sakayadity and all that that we talk about. So then we learn in terms of, in tune with Tanha, what is biological, what is necessary, and what is appropriate according to precepts. So. Um, my precepts are that we don't have a meal in the evening right now I might be hungry in the evening but I know darn well that I'm going to survive to the next day so the hunger is a biological urge but now there's no food available and my rule is not to eat food I can watch I can watch hunger uh, and not suppress it not say it's right or wrong say oh hunger feels this way and that gives me a lot of strength right because now I'm observing a biological desire, but I'm not just saying, yeah, I'm going to go to the fridge and have a sandwich or something. I just observe it. And that gives a lot of strength and, and confidence. And um, and, then, and then desire doesn't have such a hold on the mind. Right? You, see, you see it more as an object and you can take refuge in awareness. And I like your Dhamma talks a lot. Um, you know, just give me a thumbs up on Facebook. It's... <laughs> I don't. I, I don't have Facebook. Is that tanha, dhamma, tanha? No, it's just liking. That's all. <laughs> liking is just liking. You know, I like coffee. I like tea. Uh, dhamma, tanha. Can you have too much dhamma? You probably could. You know, and the way that might work, the main that you'd, you'd rather watch a YouTube clip of dhamma rather than sit for an hour. Say, I It's easier to watch YouTube with an inspiring teacher uh, for an hour than to sit quietly for an hour. Don't you think? I mean, I guess. I mean, not that I watch YouTube, but I I should think so. Or, you know, you watch a really interesting movie on Buddhism, right? And then another one. And then, but to sit quietly for an hour, that's a different, different kind of effort. How different is sati and awareness, or are they the same? One needs to have sati before being aware of something, but sometimes one can have sati without being aware of things. For example, when you are reading, you may have sati focusing on the content of the book, but you may not be aware of yourself doing the reading as your mind is absorbed into the content. Please kindly elaborate this issue and their relevance to meditation, dhamma practice. So I use these words synonymously, you know, and, and some scholars what I'm sure chop it up, but I just tend to use sati, or awareness, or sati sampajanya or the knowing, or the witness, or puru. I, I use them quite synonymously. I don't, I don't have a, a scholar's mind that chops it up. Well, this means this and this means that. So, um, and then I also use a focus and concentration. So, like I say, when I'm uh, doing woodwork, I'm really concentrated, hopefully. <laughs> if I'm not, I'm in trouble. Um, and, and, and then you know, then I'm trying to exclude everything else. I'm doing that deliberately because now my fingers are on the line <laughs> and the workmanship. So, uh, I'm, 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 I really am not, trying to notice what's going on. Hmm? And I can, I can learn how to do that. Um, but then if I'm too focused and I'm too tense, then that doesn't work either. So I need some fluidity. So I'm learning how to concentrate with fluidity. So even in the concentration, there's still uh, an awareness of the effect of my concentration on the working on my body and so on and so forth. But then um, if I am not doing that and and I'm and I'm just sitting in awareness I like to to contemplate more like space and openness and then just contemplate the khandas arising and ceasing arising and ceasing and not focus deliberately not focus and it's a different kind of exercise or if if my mind's really scattered then I'll focus for a while just to really ground it into the present moment. Do that for a while, deliberately. And then, okay, the mind feels settled. Mind feels settled, and just open up. Choiceless awareness. So I tend to use those two words, like concentration, and then all these other words awareness, presence, knowing, sati. I don't, I don't differentiate them. It's, it, and, and then there's the issue of attention, right? So all of this is about attention. Right? How do I attend to things? How do I pay attention? We say, interesting, why do we say pay attention? In English, Micah, you're not paying for anything. Huh? Have you ever thought of that? Pay attention. <laughs> I have to look it up on Google. Um, so <laughs> that's what we say. So, so I am attending to something, right? So when I'm, I'm uh, before the sitting, I'm looking at the clock, where's the second button? Press it on. Is it on? Good, done. Okay, I have to pay attention. But I don't have to focus like I focus on the, um, on the machines, right? Or when I pick this up, I need to pay attention, but I don't have to squeeze the hell out of this thing, right? I just get an appropriate attention to lift it up. I don't, you know, it's not like that. So I'm not like super focused, but I am focused enough. So how much? how much attention do you need? Well, in meditation, I would say it, like, it depends how scattered you are. Like if you're really, really scattered and your mind's really chatty and so on, then do some deep breathing or like sleepiness, do some deep, do something very deliberate, very deliberate. So then mindfulness of breathing can be much, much too subtle, right? Like, like it's, let's say, let's say sleepiness. Um, if you're, if you're if you're rocking around <laughs> like that, uh, then the subtlety of the breath is ridiculous. It's, you know, it's just like a lullaby will put you to sleep. So, so then, no, something vigorous, energetic, hold the energy, spine and all that, then you do that. But you don't want to do that rest of your life, so maybe it's better to go to sleep. <laughs> So you go to sleep and you come back, oh the sleepiness is still there, oh, okay, then more energy, but then you find, okay, now, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it, how to, f- I know how to put energy, but now I don't need to, so you back off, you back off, and that's around, that's around the uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and right composure, I don't use, try not to use concentration now, I'm trying to get out of that, that word, because I'm trying to get a different language around that, hmm? So it it doesn't really, it's not defined in a a strict way, but you can see how those three factors, um, effort, mindfulness, and composure, or collectedness, or focus, if you have, uh, are what we're working with all the time. They're always working, you put more energy in, less energy, experimenting. And over time, you, you, you just know your own mind, don't you? You know the sleepy mind, you know the restless mind, you know the worried mind, you just know, oh yeah, there's, a, there's Mr. Worry. It's like you've got this family up there. <laughs> you know, Uncle George, oh there's Uncle George again, and you know, there's the complainer, eh, Auntie Mary, she's complaining again, or, <laughs> and you just know them, but you no longer get caught in the fa- family dynamics. <laughs> you just know, ah, oh, it's this family. You don't make it a problem. Uh, but if there's something really, like, really going on, you have, to, you have to pay more attention because you don't understand it. So it's, it's very dynamic, it's very creative, it's very intuitive. In that kind of way. So uh, rather than expand on anything more complicated, how about a bedtime story? Huh? Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you get sick of dharma, so you need a bedtime story. So... Uh, one of the most and you might have heard me give this story but there's a one of the most beautiful experiences I've had in, in terms of human human stories um, so set the stage for you first There's uh, this is around 1996 97 uh, where are we we're at Amaravati and uh introduced Sister Nanda, Sister Nanda at this time is about, she's maybe 80-ish, maybe over 80, and she's an honorary Mechi, and she is tiny, she's tiny, right, tiny lady, uh, white, white, white hair, and she is, got bad macular degeneration, her eyesight is poor, and she's pretty deaf. So you basically have to scream at her to <laughs> for her to hear. And she is loved by the whole community. She's absolutely lovely. And she, she's passed away since, but her husband, I forget how, he was an engineer in Sri Lanka and that's where she made her Buddhism. And, and then he had some kind of illness and she cared for him for decades. Absolute saint, just this beautiful, beautiful caring woman. So she, I forget how she made contact with the Sangha, but she would come and stay with the nuns at Amaravati and sometimes at Chithurst. And she was our honorary Mechi, so she'd wear white. And how she, she was always impeccably white. I don't know how she did it. Because she couldn't see and she couldn't hear, but she always was like perfect. Just this perfect white little beautiful being. And she loved to make fudge for the monks. And so she'd come and one to hear some fudge. And we loved it too. So this was a good deal. Um, and then uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was scheduled to give a talk in London at the Royal Albert Hall. I don't know if you know, in London, Royal Albert Hall, it's a Victorian convocation hall which holds maybe six to 10,000 people. It is the most exquisite architecture. It's a, it's a domed... Uh, auditorium, and the pillars are only out by the balconies, so the center is all very, very open. And the, the interestingly enough, the stage um, is can be accessed right from the seats. Usually, you know, the stage is above everything, but this the stage can be accessed by the uh, central seats. And it's a kind of interesting construction, very, very beautiful. So, His Holiness is coming, and and we had, we had about. Thirty tickets for the uh, for the talk, and so Sister Nanda finds out, and she goes to and Samito. Can I make fudge for the Dalai Lama? <laughs> and he says, Yeah, so sound, sounds a good idea. Why not? So she's you know, she's cooking away, making fudge, <laughs> and 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 the next day, we had a bus, rent, rented a bus, and the sisters I think we divided the tickets the men and the monks had probably 15 tickets and the sisters and the women had 15 tickets in some way and so we were given the tickets as we were getting on the bus and uh, when we reached Royal Albert Hall then as we went into the auditorium into the hall uh, the monks had the seats in in the front, in the balcony, so we were overlooking the scene, and the nuns had the seats down below, right near the stage. Okay, you're getting this. So there's <laughs> Sister Nanda with her with her fudge package, <laughs> and she sits down, and we're we're all watching this, right? It's great fun, and um, she ha- she has one of the outside seats. And Sister Sundara then just kind of shuffles her and then she's got one of the seats even closer to the stage now, right? <laughs> and now she's kind of almost blind and can't hear so she's very tottery. So His Holiness gives a fabulous talk and you know if you've ever heard him speak it's just so inspiring and everyone loves him and so much and, and then he finishes the talk and everyone's applauding and we're all watching, okay? so. Sister Sundara and, and uh, S- Sister Nanda stand up. And Sister Sundara kind of launches her. <laughs> and there she is. All of a sudden, she's on the stage. And everyone in the, in the auditorium is looking, wow. And, and we're all kind of clapping. But And then she, she gets to his holiness. And she gets on her, on her knees to bow to him. right, With her fudge. And he gets on his knees to bow to her. And and, and we're crying by then. Everyone's like tears of joy. And she offers him his fudge. and, 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 And she picks him up and they hug. And then the whole audience is now just clapping like crazy. It was just one of those beautiful, beautiful moments that you kind of, we're glad you were there. Sister Nanda died about two years later, I think. But it must have been one of the high points of her life. It certainly was mine.